Hello and welcome back to Deconstructing the Bible. My name is Jason Stuffenhagen, the Associate Minister at The Well, United Methodist Church in Rosemont, Minnesota. Today is November 1st, 2021, which it is my nine-month anniversary of being employed at The Well. And I have really enjoyed the last nine months of being employed at The Well. I've, I've really enjoyed diving into and learning more about what it means to be a Methodist, what it means to be a United Methodist. I am working towards becoming a licensed local pastor um, in this kind of first inaugural year of being a Methodist. And so it has been a journey of learning, of diving deeper into what is Methodism, what was John Wesley all about as kind of the father of the tradition. And so I have really enjoyed getting to know the heritage of this denomination that I am joining. One of the things that really drew me to Methodism, what really drew me into the UMC and, and was kind of the kind of the propelling motion out of Christian higher ed was I really loved the Wesleyan quadrilateral. Now, I don't know if I've really talked about this much on the podcast, and this is kind of nerding out right at the beginning, so I hope I don't lose people too quickly. But John Wesley had this idea that there were these four basic elements that really helped a person make decisions and help them understand their faith, help them understand how they believe and what they believe and why they believe what they believe. And so these four elements are really beautiful and they kind of all work together. So the first one is the idea of scripture, the Holy Scriptures, right? The Hebrew Scriptures and the New Testament, the Gospel writings, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the writings of Paul and other epistles, uh, Revelation, all of that. And the Scripture is the primary, the focus. It's the the kind of the number one. It's the kind of the bedrock, the foundation upon which these others are are built upon. And so the second piece of it is tradition, right? The tradition that's handed down from the church, the tradition that, as is talked about in one of the books I am reading for my ordination process, doesn't just include certain ways of doing church, but it's tradition ranging from the early Christians to the Protestant Reformation to even current kind of literature and contemporary spirituality. And so what is going on in the ethos of Christianity and how is it informing who we are? What are the traditions of the church and how does it inform what we believe and who we are becoming. The third idea is the idea of experience. Like what are you going through? What have you engaged? What in your life has shaped who you are? And then finally the idea of reason. Like what do we know? How do we figure things out? We look at science and we look at how things um, actually are factually. And we use all three of those in tandem. The bedrock is scripture. We look at our traditions, we look at our experiences, and we bring reason into the conversation. And together, those four elements, the Wesleyan quadrilateral, help us understand what we believe and why we believe it. And it helps us as we make decisions with our lives about how we're going to put our call or our vocation into action. What's the mission for our life? Um, We get these things based on uh, scripture, tradition, our experiences, and reason. Um, And I really, really resonate with that Wesleyan quadrilateral. I think it really has helped put language around kind of the theological thrust of my own faith, that I was raised in a very scriptural family, a very scriptural 
background of the church where memorizing scripture, memorizing the books of the Bible was really emphasized. And I memorized a lot of scripture growing up. And so the scriptures have always been very meaningful to me. It's always been something that I've studied. Now, sometimes I was begrudgingly studying it because it was seen as a rule or as an expectation when I'd rather be playing video games or rather be, you know, just lazily going about my morning. There were times of Bible reading, but of course, that really informed kind of what I believed and how passionately I believed it. Now, tradition was a little less emphasized because I was not a part of a denomination that From my understanding, of course, now I can only talk about it from my perspective. I can't tell you how my parents thought of it because I'm not my parents. And so um, the kind of the tradition that I was handed um, was not one that I understood as going back years and years and centuries and centuries all the way back, but was more of a modern understanding of the evangelical movement. And so traditions were seen kind of as like, oh, the Lutheran thing or the Catholic thing. And they were seen as more of this old thing that I wasn't as a part of. It was more of a contemporary Christianity. And so I didn't really understand or appreciate the traditions um, like I maybe would have otherwise if I had grown up in a different context. Now, there were, of course, things like the the main kind of two sacraments, right? Taking communion um, and baptism. And those were very beautiful moments in my faith journey that were traditions that were handed to me. And so taking communion for the first time at Wyzetta Evangelical Free Church, being baptized at Wyzetta Evangelical Free Church um, was a very, you know, personal and very meaningful time for me. And I look back at those two elements um, as very uh, consistent in my life, the, this rhythm of taking communion as as a member of the church and and being a part of the flow of the service and participating in the different things that would go on, whether it was the Christmas program where I completely botched the duet that turned into a solo uh, for the other person, um, or whether it was you know just being a part of the youth group growing up. These different rhythms of the church I remember uh, being a part of. These weren't quite as maybe quote unquote traditional as other spaces that people have been brought up in. Now, experience was always a little bit different. We didn't always think about our experience as being that meaningful. I mean, of course it is. I mean, it's hard to get away from your personal experience shaping who you are. Of course it does. You know, the things in your life that happen to you, the things in life that you do, the choices that you make, of course they shape what you think and how you believe and and the faith that you have. I mean, if you choose to go to church, that's a choice that you make. That's an experience that you're willing to have. If you go to church camp, there's experiences that you're going to have at those camps. If you're if you do things, if you make choices about the way you treat people, those experiences are going to shape who you are. If you pick on somebody and you become a bully, like of course it's going to shape how you view the world. If you've been bullied, if you've been marginalized or hurt, of course that's going to shape how you view things. I mean, one of the simplest ways of kind of understanding this is if you talk to someone that comes from a marginalized community about the Bible, the way they read it, the way they understand, the way that they are interpreting the Bible can be vastly different from someone who comes from a majority culture, or comes from a place of privilege, because the way they engage the Bible is just very different about what it may be saying based on a person's station in life. And so our experiences greatly shape how we are engaging faith. And then, of course, reason, being able to approach it from a level of our life and our faith from a level of rationality and saying, okay, does this just make sense? Or is there something maybe more going on here? You know, if if the Bible talks about 
you know, the rocks crying out, um, you know, a reasonable person would say, okay, what's really going on here? I mean, rocks don't have mouths, they don't have lung capacity, you know, like rocks don't cry out. You know, what was Jesus saying here? You know, when he says the rocks would cry out if the people didn't shout Hosanna, you know, what's really happening here? Now, I mean, it could just be a beautiful sentiment. It could be, you know, something metaphorical. You know, we have to ask these questions because we have reason. We have our intellect and our rationale for things. And so we have to use the the brains that God gave us, right? God even instructs us. Jesus says that we are to love God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our might, and, and with all of our minds, right? So our reason, our rationality, our logic, it matters. And our study and the facts that we are engaging matter because they're helping us understand the world around us and the faith that we have. So scripture, the bedrock, the foundation, traditions, our experience, and our reason are all parts of how we understand and shape our faith. I think part of the spiritual journey for me, as I've kind of alluded to, is I was handed a very beautiful and very scripture-focused understanding of faith. You know, kind of that Lutheran, Luther idea of sola scriptura, you know, that we, we have to really dive into the scriptures, and that's where we learn everything there is to know about God and Jesus and the Spirit and and faith. And and that was a really beautiful understanding. But when I got to my professional life and moved away from Minnesota and started my married life and I started reading many different authors, started studying theology, did a master's in theology, and I started reading about people's experiences of the world, started reading about the kingdom of God being for the marginalized. I started reading about feminist theology and, and liberation theology and how people from different cultural backgrounds and different ethnicities um, were engaging the scriptures. And I couldn't help but start to ask some really interesting questions about the kind of understanding of faith that I had. And I would wrestle with these questions and bounce questions off of people that I trusted and I loved and I that I knew cared for me deeply and created some really good theological debate and conversation. Sometimes it created hard moments in life when maybe disagreed with someone that I deeply cared about and just created some tension. And that tension sometimes exists today about different topics and themes in life. Um, there's, there's tension out there because we don't always agree on everything. We don't always see the world the same way, especially when it comes to the different things that faith impacts, like our politics or our ways of understanding people different from us. And so there's some tension that comes from being a Christian and a Christ follower and someone who is thinking critically about faith. So this is a really long lead up to a passage of scripture that I think is really informative for us today. And it comes from the book of Matthew chapter nine. And it's not exactly a parable, even though depending on the list you're looking at, it might be labeled a parable because Jesus is telling us some information that is alluding to a spiritual truth or leading to a way of being in the world that is maybe different than the cultural expectations. So it's parabolic in its use. And so here's the story. One day, the disciples of John the Baptist, this is again from Matthew chapter 9, this is verse 14. One day, the disciples of John the Baptist came to Jesus and asked him, why don't your disciples fast like we do? 
and the Pharisees do? And so it's a very genuine question that the disciples are at. Why don't your disciples do the religious expectations that the rest of us are doing? Those of us that are considered very connected to the faith. Why aren't your disciples doing the things that the rest of us are doing, like fasting? Jesus replied, do wedding guests mourn while celebrating with the groom? Of course not. But someday the groom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. And then he gives these two kind of analogies, or he gives these two kind of parabolic ideas. He says, besides, who would patch old clothing with new cloth? For the new patch would shrink and rip away from the old cloth, leaving an even bigger tear than before. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, for the old skins would burst from the pressure, spilling the wine and ruining the skins. New wine is stored in new wineskins, so that both are preserved. Here's why I think this parable, this story is so important for us today and why I kind of led up with all the United Methodist talk, the John Wesley stuff, the you know Wesleyan quadrilateral, and my own history of growing up in the church and being really central on the Bible and, and having this beautiful faith handed to me, but one that I've wrestled with and had some tension around. It's because sometimes I think people think Jesus came to start a new religion, that Jesus came to start a new religion. And sometimes they'll point to this passage in Matthew chapter 9 is saying, see, Jesus came to start a new religion. He wanted to throw out the old religion, the old wineskins of the Pharisees, and to say, away with those old wineskins, because new wine, this new religion, should be stored in new wineskins, this new religion, this new space for us to operate. And I think sometimes people want us to start a new religion, or think that that's what Jesus came to do, is start a whole new religion. I think there's a few problems with that. Number one, Jesus isn't um, saying that the kind of expectations of being a disciple, like the ones of John the Baptist or the work of the Pharisees, was wrong. He never says that they're wrong. He doesn't tell them that his disciples will never practice fasting, that they will never take away from their life in order to focus on their spirituality, right? Fasting is this idea of abstaining from something so that you can focus on the good work that God has for you or the learning that God has for you. So maybe it's putting down social media for a time so that you can really focus on growing in your faith or growing in a certain relationship. Maybe it's setting aside certain types of food because you know that those foods are a distraction to you. Or maybe it's um, just being in a space where you are just being more accountable to your time and recognizing what um, you need to be spending time doing. You know, the thing about fasting is that we always talk about what you're taking away, but fasting is also about what you're adding in. So when you fast, it's not just about taking away something, but it's about putting something in its place that's moving you into a more healthy version of yourself or a member of God's kingdom in a more dynamic way. It's a way of kind of learning and growing. It's a way of, of, of engaging the transformational work of the Spirit, which is why um, every Lenten season, there's an encouragement to fast. There's this yearly rhythm of fasting and, and saying, I want to grow in my faith. And that we culminate in the cross, this ultimate time of, of sacrificial growth, this ultimate time of, of 
change and transformation. We go from being dead to alive on Easter. And so there's this transformational process that we go through with Lent and fasting is a way of engaging that because we fast and we pray and we also do, we serve, we get involved, we use our lives for building God's kingdom. So Jesus isn't saying that we will never fast. Okay, we want to be really clear about that. Jesus isn't saying we're just throwing out all of the religious stuff. What Jesus is saying is that we have to recognize that there's time and there's a season for everything. I mean, this goes all the way back to Ecclesiastes. There's a time, you know, for this and there's a time for that. There's a time for for tears and there's a time for joy. There's a time and a season for all things. And Jesus is recognizing that as disciples, this season that his disciples are in are a time of absorbing what Jesus is up to. And they don't have time at that moment to fast. They don't have time to hit pause and to strip things away. No, they're already in that. They're already just in the absorption. They're in the transformational portal. They, they are in this tunnel of transformation where they are just soaking it in as much as humanly possible. You know, they're trying to drink from a fire hose at this moment. They don't have time to hit pause on that. They got to drink as much as possible. Why? Because Jesus is with them. He's in the flesh. He's modeling to them this way of being in the world. And it's dynamic and it's beautiful. And they have to just go for it, go for it, go for it. And here's the other thing. Jesus is critiquing here. And that's where this parable, that's where this this story, this analogy, this thing that Jesus is doing in this story is so kind of countercultural is because what the Pharisees had done is they had created all of these rules that you couldn't augment, you couldn't possibly question. They had created all these expectations. They had, they had gotten so keyed in on the letter of the law that they forgot the spirit of the law, right? The spirit of the law was that the Ten Commandments and the Levitical expectations of the Old Testament were meant to help people flourish in relationship to God and flourish in relationship to one another, that they were blessed to be a blessing to all nations. But instead, instead, the history of Israel is of a group of people that at times do that really well, but then at other times, they end up becoming the exact thing that they hate. They become the marginalizers and the oppressors. They become the enslavers even, right? This freed group of slaves from Egypt become those who enslave their neighbor in order to build the temple and the palace in Jerusalem. And so they have a history of getting this out of whack, of going for the letter of the law as opposed to the spirit of the law. And the Pharisees are a first century extension of that where they've gotten so focused on the law and the rules that they've lost sight of the transformational power of God's spirit and what God is up to and what the spirit is up to and what Jesus is there to proclaim. Good news for the poor, healing, sight to the blind, the year of the Lord's Jubilee, right? This is Jesus quoting the Old Testament, but announcing his coming. And so the old wineskins are not bad. They just need to hold the old wine and that's okay. Like that wine is still good. It's highly fermented and it's ready to be served and it's a beautiful thing. And there's, there's use for that wine. Jesus doesn't say we're throwing out the wine. No, we don't throw out the wine. We just have to recognize that that old wine is used for a specific thing. It's a beautiful thing. But this new wine, this new wine has to go through a fermentation process. And that fermentation process is actually going to stretch or it's going to push against the, the, the wine skin. And so if you tried to put this new wine 
in an old wineskin that's already been stretched to its limit, it's going to burst and pop wide open and it's going to spill everywhere and it's going to spoil. But you have to put it in a new wineskin that has the ability, the elasticity to expand as the wine expands and ferments, the the skin can move with the wine and they work well together. That's why new wine goes in new wineskins and old wine needs to stay in old wineskins. And so what Jesus here is doing is saying, when something new is being birthed, it's okay. It's okay that it might take on a new form, right? And because that's what, that's what happens is that there's spirit, there's what is going on, there's what is happening, there's what God is up to. And in John 3, the spirit is like the wind. It blows here and there and you don't exactly know where it's going. And so the spirit is up to something. There is new wine being poured out. There is new wine being given, but the form is what's in question. We know the spirit is up to something, but what's the form that it's going to take? That's the new wineskin. What is the form that is going to embody or going to put structure to what is happening in the world? Because we can't be structureless. We can't have no structure whatsoever. And I really appreciate uh, Rob Bell talks about this, um, the idea of spirit and form. But there's this beautiful understanding that we can't be just off doing whatever and just going with the flow as if there's no structure. No, we need structure. Now, think of it like the lifespan of a human being, right? Little kids might need more structure because there's less maturity involved. They don't quite know how to make good, rational, healthy decisions for their life, right? They're going to run out into the road without looking both ways. So we give them structure. We say, don't leave the yard. Don't go past this line. Don't leave this fenced in area. Or if you are going to cross street, here are the rules for doing so. Look both ways, twice to the left, once to the right. Make sure that you are looking. Get permission before you go to this place or to that place. Make sure when you're a little older that you bring your phone with you or you bring your watch so that I can know where you are at all times. And I can be connected to you. My 11-year-old wants to spend time with some friends, but he forgets to have that point of contact and I don't know where he is and I can't figure that out. It's not 1982 anymore. And so I'm a little bit more cautious and I'm a little bit more freaked out about what may happen to him in the world. And so, yeah, you better believe I need to know where he is because I know that his capability and resources for getting back home as advanced as they may be for an 11-year-old, are not the same as my wife, who's a little bit older than 11. And so there's going to be more rules and structure. The old wine, right, this younger kid is going to need different structures, whereas my wife, she has a little bit more freedom. She has the ability to move and to grow and to do her thing, and there's a different structure needed. So why do I bring this all up? Because in my life, in my faith journey, I have pushed back pretty hard about the way that we do church or the way that church was done when I was younger. I've been, I mean, for lack of a better word, overly critical about it. I've probably been so critical about it that I've hurt people. I've, I've harmed my relationships with people that I really dearly love because I've been critical about the way we do church or why we do church the way we do it and and what it looks like. And, and I think there's, you know, healthy critique is not a bad thing, but when it hurts relationships, that's a problem. 
And so at some level, this podcast is a extended apology to those that I've already apologized to in the past, but it's a way of saying like, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that I pushed back so hard or I made people feel inadequate about the way they were doing things. Um, and that's partly because there was a level of new wine and I was putting it in an old wineskin and saying it doesn't work. And yeah, it doesn't always work that way. I needed a new wineskin. I needed a new space. The problem is that like some people who interpret this passage, they want to throw out the old wineskin and say it's not helpful. Here's the thing. Jesus doesn't throw out the old wineskin. He doesn't throw out the old wine. He just recognizes that it has a space and a place in the development of the human person, in the development of a believer, in the development of someone of faith. There are beautiful, beautiful practices for different forms of Christianity that go back hundreds and hundreds and even thousands of years that are still meaningful and beautiful today. Now, that doesn't mean that you have to do them or that they are the only way of doing things. Because remember what Wesley talks about, and this is where I really appreciate what Wesley is saying here, is that the foundation is scripture, not tradition. Traditions are important. The way we do church is important. Historical understanding of how we do church is really important. And if it's meaningful to be in touch with that, if it's meaningful to have that liturgy and to have that flow, then by all means, like participate in it. I mean, one of my favorite experiences of being at the well is getting back into a traditional service where we do a call to worship, where we have certain hymns that are sung, certain things that are read, the reading of the scripture before we give the message, you know, the the doxology after we take uh, our offering, the, the beautiful blessing at the end of the service. All of these elements have meaning and purpose and flow and there's order and it's beautiful to participate in that. But that doesn't mean that if there's a house church out there, there's a group of people that listen to a spiritual or a church podcast and then talk about it and they call that church and they meet in their homes and they share food together and they care for one another. That's church too. And that's a beautiful, beautiful expression of the church. You know, there's something dynamic about the, that form of church. It might feel like new wine that's a little bit different but that new wine and that flow of connecting with God is so beautiful and dynamic and they're putting it in a new wineskin and that is okay. Because here's the thing that I am trying, trying my best as someone who is still in process and still learning. How do we embrace new wine and the new wineskin that holds it while not shaming and throwing away the old wine and the old wineskin? What if the world needs both? What if we need both? Is that okay? Can we do that? Can we have both? I really love this quote by Ian Paul who, who wrote this article online that I found. He said, the parable that we read here is not about creating new structures or institutions, which surely themselves over time will become rigid as the old wineskins have already done. So I love what he's saying there. He's like, Whatever new you're creating right now will one day get old, and then there's going to be people that are going to critique it, and they're going to show that it's old wine and old wineskins, and it's going to need some adjustment. That's totally normal. It's normalizing the process of development and growth over time. But, about, but, but what this is about, what this parable is about, is about people who are willing to receive the teaching about what God is doing now. We don't necessarily need to scrap the patterns created 
in response to earlier teaching, though we might need to reform them, much more important is whether as people listening to this teaching, we enact the traditions we have received with flexibility, compassion, and grace. And it was this, the lack of flexibility, the lack of compassion, the lack of grace that the Pharisees had. They had a lack of those things. And then he finishes with this. So what is the new wine God is pouring into your life at this moment? And are you being flexible like new wineskins? What's the structure you're putting around this new moment, this new teaching, this new movement of the Spirit? What new wineskins are you putting around it? Are they flexible in order to receive what God is doing without scorning the old thing that God did in your life yesterday? And that is the significant part. How can you receive what God is doing with flexibility like new wineskins without scorning the old thing that God did in your life yesterday? I think so much of our issue with the church is not about the church, but about our own experience in it. There's part of us that says, oh man, I was caught up in this and now I don't know if I identify with that as much anymore. And we forget that there was so much beauty. I was telling a friend of mine just the other day that if my parents didn't raise me in the church and enveloped in the Bible, memorizing scripture the way I did, I probably wouldn't be the pastor that I am today. I don't know who I would be today without the space that was created for me as a young person, learning and growing in the way I did. Now, were there things that I look back on and say, ah, oh, that probably could have been done differently? And, oh, man, that, you know, that thing that influenced me is probably not the best idea, and maybe I'll do it differently. Well, of course, we all have those things in life. We all have those moments. We all have those growth points. I mean, how many of us say things that five years later we wish we hadn't said, or we would be like, man, I can't believe I said it that way in the past. Like, I know better now. Yes, we're all learning and growing, and we have empathy for ourselves. And we, if we don't, we need to. We need to have empathy for ourselves that we are growing people, and institutions like the church need to grow too. And that's okay. We can appreciate them for what they were. We can be constructively critical in areas that we need to be but then we can compliment one another and recognize that God is still up to something, whether it's in an old wineskin or in a new wineskin. There is something dynamic that God's spirit is up to, and we need to create space for it. So as you navigate your life, your faith, your journey, the community that you're a part of, the question isn't, have you figured out the perfect form, the perfect wineskin? Now, it's not about creating the perfect wineskin. It's are you creative, flexible, compassionate, full of grace as you move through this life, asking the question, where are the fruit of the Spirit showing up in this moment? Where is there more love? Where is there more peace? Where is there more patience? Where is there more kindness? How is this space that I'm in and that I'm a part of, this institution that I represent, how is it exemplifying the grace and the humility and the self-control and the patience and the presence of God? And if it isn't, how does that need to change? What do we do now? So how are you participating in the movement of God? Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Whether it's 
in an older wineskin that has so much to teach us, or whether you're moving into a new wineskin because there's something that God is teaching you and helping you come to realize. How are you exemplifying the fruit of the Spirit in the midst of transformation and growth as we help others recognize that God is not a God who is inviting us into something old and that is unchanging, but that God is inviting us into the transformational life of the Spirit that moves towards grace and moves towards hope and love. Can we do that? Can that be what the church is? Can that be who we are as a people? Thanks for joining me in Deconstructing the Bible. As we've done all season, there will be a link in the show notes to a Zoom meeting on Thursday at 1 p.m. Central Time. So feel free to check out that Zoom meeting and we'll take this conversation a little deeper and in any direction you want to go. So come check us out on Zoom again in the show notes at 1 p.m. on Thursday. Thanks again for joining me on Deconstructing the Bible. Thank you.